Then there were five by Elizabeth Enright. Chapter six. The Citronella Peril. One day Rush went to see Mark by himself. Randy couldn't come. She had to go to the dentist in Braxton, and had departed glowering with rage, disappointment, and apprehension. Also, she clung to the unreasonable conviction that Rush shouldn't have gone to see Mark without her. He should have stayed home. But Rush couldn't see it that way. He'd only have half a day with Mark anyhow, as the morning had all been squandered mowing the lawn. Isaac wanted to go too, but Rush wouldn't let him. Meeker's dogs would make hamburger out of you. You stay home. Good boy, Isaac. Good old lop-eared boy. But Isaac refused to be mollified. He tucked the side of his lip between his teeth, which was his way of sulking, and glared at Rush with eyes like hot molasses. And he decided to go away by himself. He'd show them. John Doe, who was more Willie's dog than anyone's, tried to dissuade him, but got nowhere. Isaac went trotting off toward the woods by himself, looking for trouble. Rush whistled as he rode. This time he carried a bucket, as well as the picnic basket, on his handlebars. I know where there are blackberries as big as that, Mark had said. Only wear long pants, because boy are they thorny. Rush wore blue jeans and heavy shoes, so did Mark. But the day was so hot that they took off their shirts and left them under the choke cherry tree above the farm with the picnic basket. Look, said Rush with pride, I brought some citronella. What's that? Stuff to keep the mosquitoes off. Here, smell. Phew! I'd rather be bit. Oh, no, you wouldn't. You get used to it by and by, and it really works. Both boys slathered themselves liberally. The afternoon progressed satisfactorily. Mark took Rush to New Woods. He seemed to know them all like the palm of his hand. The blackberries were almost as large as he had said. For a long time the boys wandered among the brambles, pulling the juicy berries from their clusters and eating as many as they dropped in their buckets. The branches above dipped in the summer wind. The woods were full of drifting light and shade. There were emerald green cushions of moss between the oak roots. Mark found a tree toad clinging to the bark of a birch, and Rush found a puffball as big as his head. Woodpeckers drummed on dead wood, and somewhere not far away there were crows calling, Cra, cra, cra. They sounded ancient and contentious, like money changers in the Bible. Rush felt as if he were a thousand miles away from civilization, and he enjoyed the feeling. Pretend this is Guadalcanal, he said. Those crows are Japs. Their camp is over there somewhere. We're Marines, of course. We have no communications. We're absolutely on our own. A volunteer job at great risk. We have to find this encampment and spy on it. You understand Japanese, see, and you tell me everything they're saying, and I take it down in shorthand. Mark caught on at once. Can't be too careful, he murmured earnestly. They may have sentries posted anywhere. Yes, and booby traps, maybe. They're clever, you know. Mustn't underestimate them. We're without food and water, too. We have to eat these berries. They're not blackberries. They're... they're... The fruit of the Weehawken tree, an oriental tree. We're lucky to have found them. The berries had an extraordinary savor after that. They simply stuffed them. There was purple all around their mouths. You be Jefferson, and I'll be... I'll be McBride, said Rush. Quiet now, Jefferson, we're getting closer. 
"'Lie down, McBride, a zero overhead.' They flung themselves down so hard that Jefferson said, "'Ow!' in a loud, normal voice. "'Shh!' hissed McBride. "'See, there he goes!' A hawk floated lazily against the sky. "'A near thing, Jefferson, a near thing. Better take it easy from here on.' As they crept, bent forward, the sounds of the enemy came clearer. The boys were so intent on the game, and so quiet in its performance, that they leapt with dismay when a startled partridge beat its way out of their path. They came to a clearing, crawled under some hazel bushes, and found themselves looking down at a farm in a valley. It stood among cornfields like an island at sea, and above those fields the enemy was hovering. "'All right, Jefferson, let's have it.' And for the next fifteen minutes Jefferson, in a low, tense whisper, interpreted the crows to McBride, who gravely wrote the message upon the palm of his hand, with a hazel twig. At the end, McBride arose with a strange, quiet smile. "'Here you are, Jefferson. Take the message back to the commanding officer. I rather think that news about the reinforcements may be useful to him. So long, old man.' "'Why, what the heck, aren't you coming to?' McBride shook his head and winced a little. "'They got me, pal,' he said, and died, very cleverly, with a spiral twist, like in the movies. Mark was admiring. "'Gee, I never would have thought of that. You did it good, too.' Rush waved aside the compliment. "'I'm hungry, aren't you? And the basket's way back near the farm.' "'I have to milk first. Come on, you help me get in the cows, and I'll give you a lesson.' Mark had a new respect for—oops! <laughs> Rush had a new respect for Mark after the milking lesson. "'Why, I thought it would be just like turning on a faucet,' he said in amazement. "'Nothing to—nothing <clears throat> to it, that's what I thought. Just a simple twist of the wrist.' "'That's what everybody thinks until they try.' Mark gave the lean black cow a loving swat on its hindquarters, and picked up the bucket. Next they fed the pigs, collected hen's eggs, finished up the dozen-odd chores that Mark left till the last minute on his precious Wednesdays. By the time they climbed the hill to the choke-cherry tree, the sun was already setting, and they were famished. They did not speak while they were eating. They were too hungry. They simply sat there, chewing, and watched the sun go down. It left its light behind it long after it had gone. The western sky was a flood of gold." The swallows came up into the air, their wings as sharp as scissors, and before the swallows had left, the bats too had begun to fly. At first it was difficult to tell which was which. They both swooped and fluttered, and zigzagged, and curved with the same reckless style. "'Aerobatics,' said Rush. "'Unless I'm mistaken, that bat just did a perfect immelman.' "'What the heck is that?' "'A kind of loop-the-loop, -loop, I believe,' replied Rush." who really was not sure, but who liked the sound of the word Immelman. The two boys lay on their backs on the hillside, full of food and peace. Below, in the hollow, the dreary farm was drowned by the dusk. Now and then one of the meeker dogs barked. They had deep, hollow voices that always sounded as if they were barking in a cellar. Overhead the sky was gradually filled with stars. "'Watch,' said Mark mysteriously. I predict that within five minutes you will see a shooting star. Before half an hour is up you will have seen at least twenty or twenty-five. Rush laughed. I hope you sent in your order early. 
"'Don't worry,' said Mark, still mysterious. "'I fixed it up for you. Just keep watching, and you'll see.' Rush lay idly staring up at the sky, and all its thousand points of light. Suddenly one of them sped across the dark, bright as a firefly, but sure of its goal as a bird. Rush sat up abruptly. "'Say!' Mark smiled. "'Lie down. Keep watching.' Almost at once there was a second star flight, and a third. A prickle of superstition crept over Rush's scalp. "'Come across now. What's the secret?' "'When you've counted twenty-five, I'll tell you.' "'There's something very fishy about this,' growled Rush. Long before the half-hour was up, he had counted twenty-five. "'Okay, come clean.' "'Well, I kind of hate to. For a minute I almost thought I was running the show.' "'but it's only because it's the 11th of August.' "'Rush was still mystified. "'I don't get it. "'Didn't you ever hear about the Perseids?' "'No, what are they?' "'They're the shooting stars you've been looking at. "'Every August they come. "'The sky is full of them, especially around the 10th. "'I've counted more than a hundred some nights.' "'I never knew that. "'Look, there goes another.' "'Lots of shooting stars come again around the middle of November.' the Leonids, but somehow I always forget to look for them, then. "'Gee, I learn more from you than I learn in a whole year at school,' said Rush admiringly, and Mark was more than happy to hear these words of praise. "'I learn a lot from you, too,' he said. He wanted to say, "'I've learned what it's like to have a friend,' but of course he didn't, because he was afraid of sounding sappy. Mark knew the constellations, too. He showed Rush— who didn't know anything except the Big Dipper, the patterns of Cassiopeia's chair and Scorpio. For a long time they wandered together in the glittering meadows overhead. Rush came back to earth first. I'd better go. What's the matter? Why? Well, I wouldn't like you to get in trouble. Orin wouldn't like to find me here, Rush said, and added candidly, and I wouldn't want him to. He doesn't come home till late Wednesday nights, honest. Mark sat up suddenly. Would you like to know why? I could show you. Come on, Rush, only you must promise never to tell. I promise, said Rush, curiosity winning, as usual. Tell me what it is. No, I'll show you. Come on. But where? Up the hill a ways, in the woods. "'Well, okay, but let's put some more citronella on. "'The mosquitoes have found out about us.' "'They crawled under the fence again and crossed the pasture. "'There was a smell of pennyroyal. "'The woods were very dark ahead. "'What can Orin be doing in the middle of the pitch-black woods at night?' "'Rush wondered aloud. "'He could be hunting possums, except they don't have them around here. "'He could be collecting moths, but it's not very likely. "'He could be operating a counterfeiting machine.' much more likely, or hiding stolen money, or lying in wait for an enemy. He probably has quite a number, or— "'Tisn't any of those,' Mark said, though it's against the law, all right. They were in the woods now, and creeping through the undergrowth. Rush, at Mark's heels, wondered how he could find his way so easily. The dense, tree-filled darkness seemed to be full of presences, whispers, murmurings, a snapped twig beneath a ghostly foot— a sudden breath of air against the cheek as though someone, something, invisible had hurried by. "'Spooky,' whispered Rush, and laughed softly to hide the fact that he felt shivery. "'Is it?' 
"'I guess tis. "'I've been in these woods so much "'I know em like my own backyard, "'and like em a lot better.' "'They stole on. "'Branches snapped in Rush's face. "'Moths whirred past his ears, "'and he got a mouthful of cobwebs. "'Far away he heard the soft, strange voices of owls. "'What's that?' he cried suddenly, "'stopping dead in his tracks and grabbing hold of Mark.' Ahead of them something stood unmoving in their path, something large and low that glowed with a cold, unearthly light. Rush was certain that he saw a ghost at last. He could actually feel the hair rising on his head. But Mark was laughing. "'That's Foxfire,' he said. "'It's only a dead stump. Sometimes dead wood gets like that when it's damp. Phosphorescent. See?' He chipped off a piece of the rotten wood and held it up. It keeps on shining when you touch it. Rush held the piece in the palm of his hand, a little witch light with no warmth. I've seen phosphorus in the ocean on a summer night, he said, tiny points of light like stars all along the waterline, but I never knew about this. Randy'd like it. We'll show her sometime. Keep quiet now. We're not far off. You have to keep awful quiet. They'd skin us alive if they caught us. Rush felt a delicious mingling of fear and curiosity, one part fear to three parts curiosity. He crouched like an Indian, stepped on tiptoe, hardly breathed as he walked. In a few minutes they could smell smoke and heard voices, a man laughing. "'Easy now,' whispered Mark, putting a restraining hand on Rush's arm. Inch by inch they crept forward. There was a light somewhere spraying out through the leaves, the shifty, uncertain light of a fire in the open. Smoke bit into their nostrils. Rush caught his foot on a dead branch and stumbled with a crash. The two boys froze. They were so still that they could hear their own heartbeats, and the dark seemed to prickle with a thousand tiny lights. After a long second, Mark let go of his breath in a sigh. They didn't notice. "'Lie down on the ground.' "'Cautiously they let themselves down "'until they were stretched flat on their stomachs. "'Kind of inch forward like a caterpillar,' Mark said. "'Follow me.' "'Little by little they made their way toward the light. "'It was scratchy and uncomfortable. "'Leaves got into Rush's eyes, nose, and mouth. "'He kept spitting out spiders, webs, twigs, "'and other foreign bodies.' His stomach was scratched unmercifully, and he put one hand down on a decayed, wet toadstool with a shudder of horror. Soon he was aware that Mark had stopped crawling, was lying still just ahead of him, and that the lights and voices were now very close. Inch by inch Rush crawled up beside him. He saw that they were lying at the edge of a little bluff looking down into a pocket, perhaps another abandoned quarry, in the hillside. Somewhere there was a tinkle of running water. The boys were so close to the occupants of the hollow that the screen of beech leaves and ferns that protected them seemed very frail security to rush. "'What are they doing? What is that thing?' he breathed into Mark's ear. "'It's a still,' Mark breathed back. "'You know, for making stuff to drink. Corn whiskey they make. It's against the law.' "'Why do they make it, then? Why don't they buy it if they want it?' This doesn't cost anything, not even the price of a license. That's why. Down in the hollow, a fire was burning beneath a strange-looking object. 
It seemed to be a round, turnip-shaped container, with a metal coil coming out of the top of it. The coil was attached to a large hogshead. Around this contraption the men were grouped. Five, Rush counted. Two were sitting on a log, two on the ground. Orrin was standing by the still, the firelight shining on his narrow face. Besides himself there were two large, shaggy men with full beards and longish hair. There was a tall, weedy man with no chin, and a great fat one with a white round face like a Stilton cheese. The men were passing a gallon vinegar jug from one to the other, but from the relish with which each one of them tilted it up and drank from it, it was obvious that the jug no longer contained vinegar. "'Who are the ones with beards?' whispered Rush. "'The de Lacy brothers, Cedric and Fitzroy. They live up back a ways, right in the woods where it's hard to get to. They have a cabin there, and they fish and hunt and set traps, and live like a couple of bears. They never come down to Carthage, even, only about twice a year.' "'Trying to forget their names, I bet,' Rush said. "'And who's the fat one?' "'That's Mr. Waldemar Crown. He's a real educated man, but he's bad. Even Orrin says so. He's supposed to have murdered a man a long time ago, but they couldn't ever prove it. And when the Carthage Bank was robbed five years ago, they thought he was the one behind it, but they never could, but they never could prove that either. Everyone's scared of him, except Orrin and the de Lacy's. He never can keep hired help on his place.' Rush felt distinctly creepy. This was the first really bad person he had ever seen. Even Orrin wasn't a criminal. "'Who's the tall, thin one?' "'Johnny Cortain. He mows lawns and does odd jobs around. He's kind of weak in the head, but they say when they get in a jam down to the bank they call in Johnny. Anything to do with numbers is duck soup to him. He's better than an adding machine. There's no harm in Johnny. He's just kind of weak and silly.' "'Quite a bunch,' said Rush. "'I wish Cuffy could see me now.' The fat man, Waldemar Crown, had apparently just told a joke, for suddenly the men began to laugh. The two with the beards kept hitting their knees and howling. Great bear howls came out of their shaggy mouths. Johnny Cortain had a high-pitched giggle, and even Orrin's narrow mouth turned up at one corner. "'Well, it's an old joke,' said the fat man. "'But I dare say it's new to you.' After all, you don't get about very much, do any, do you, any of you? At least not in the realm of light entertainment. It would be rather unrewarding for the de Lacy boys to swap anecdotes with the company they keep, woodchucks and skunks and squirrels. Johnny never remembers a story, and you, Orrin, confine your social life to the livestock on your farm. You ought to go about more. "'Well, I'm going to,' said Orrin unexpectedly setting down the vinegar jug, with which he had been refreshing himself at some length. "'I'm going to clear out. Going to sell the farm. I've had enough of it. Fed up and through. I won't get much for it, but I'll get enough to lift me out of here. Then I'll clear out. Get me one of those defense jobs that pays good, or set up with a fella I know on a fruit ranch in California.' "'What you going to do with the kid?' said Johnny Cortain. "'Take him along?' "'Nah.' "'Take him along. He ain't nothing but a weight around my neck. "'I'm aiming to let the county look after him if he can't look after himself. "'Them welfare people been nosing around too much. "'Now they'll get him for good. Let them worry about him for good.' "'Rush put his hand on Mark's shoulder. "'Gee,' he said. "'The authorities may have something to say about that,' declaimed the fat man. 
who, for unpleasant reasons of his own, was an authority on the authorities. "'I wonder if they'll let you step out so easily.' Oren smiled his crooked smile. "'Ever hear of a fella change in his name? I got one all picked, and what's more, I got an advantage in my face. It don't show up good in a crowd. There's a lot of folks looks like me.' "'And they ain't the kind of folks anyone cares to look at twice,' observed a Delacy brother, pawing the air in mirth while Oren scowled. "'It's an inconspicuous type, granted,' said the fat man. "'Well, more power to you, Oren. I'm a great believer in the individual liberties myself.' "'And how?' agreed the other Delacy. The fat man ignored him. "'Now what I have in mind is this,' he said. "'Your boy. What is his name?' "'Mark Heron, and he ain't my boy.' "'Yes, Mark. I myself could use a lively boy about the place.' I can't keep any hired help longer than a week or so, but a boy like that, young, dependent, it would dispense with the question of salary, and a charitable act on my part, just at this moment, would be both becoming and salutary. It's okay with me, said Oren indifferently, and stooped down again for the jug. Rush looked at Mark. His eyes were glittering in the firelight, showing grief or rage or both. "'Dug on him! He won't do it! I won't let him! I'll run away first. whispered Mark savagely. "'Darn right you won't! You come live with us, that's what you do!' "'Your father would like that fine, I bet. Thanks just the same, though. I'm glad we came here tonight. I thought Oren was acting queer.' One of the DeLacy brothers lifted his long nose. "'I smell a dang funny smell. You know what it is, Fitzroy?' Fitzroy also lifted his nose. "'You two have noses like wild animals,' said the fat man. "'Have another drink.' "'I smell it, too,' cried Johnny Cortain in his reedy voice. "'It's citronella, that's what it is. "'It's to keep mosquitoes away. "'Who's got it on? I ain't.' "'Just as soon wear perfumery,' grunted a de Lacy. "'It's you, ain't it, Crown?' The fat man shook his head. "'They don't bite me. "'I imagine I have a bitter rind like a lemon.' "'Tain't Orin, neither. It's coming down wind,' said the first de Lacy, lumbering to his feet. "'Strong enough to knock you over. Bring the lantern, Fitzroy.' Before Rush scrambled away from the bluff edge, he saw that the de Lacy had a shotgun in his hand. "'Quick!' whispered Mark. Their headlong flight was noisy and terrifying. Like frightened stags, they crashed through the underbrush. Behind them there was more crashing, loud bellows, and a few wild shots from the gun." but before long the hullabaloo ceased, and Mark slowed down. "'Jeepers!' said Rush. "'Jeepers! W! Creepers! I never was shot at before in my whole life! Jeepers!' "'Oh, they probably just shot it off up in the air to scare us,' Mark said. "'But I'm glad they couldn't see us.' "'All I need is a ten-gallon hat and a good horse,' said Rush. "'Hi-ho, Silver! Jiminy! I never thought I'd go through anything like that. "'What would they have done if they'd caught us?' "'Let's not try to guess. "'They don't know it was us. "'They'd never guess you, because they don't know I know you, "'and Orrin thinks I don't know about the still, either. "'Only when we get down to the creek I'm going to wash. "'If he ever smells citronella on me.' "'What will you do? "'About what he said, I mean.' "'I don't know, but I won't be kept by the county, "'and I won't work for Crown. "'Do you think I could pass for eighteen? Rush almost laughed. 
"'Well, no, I guess not. "'I wished I could. I'd join the Marines.' "'Be your age, Mark. You'll have to be anyway. You're thirteen. "'But don't you worry. When my father gets back from Washington, I'll ask him. "'He knows a lot about everything.' "'Mark sighed. I wished I knew when Oren's planning to leave.' The creek was dark and cool-sounding, but Rush was too lazy and exhausted to bathe in it. He lay on the bank in a bed of mint, breathing in deep breaths, letting the night and the fragrance and the fresh sound of water wash away the ugliness of what he had seen and heard. Mark scrubbed and splashed nearby. <clears throat> Mark scrubbed and splashed nearby, but he wasn't enjoying it. He was worrying. "'Gee, I wished I knew what to do.' "'It'll be okay,' said Rush. "'He felt sorry for Mark, but he knew his father would think of something. "'I'll write to him if he doesn't come soon,' he said. "'He was half asleep by the time Mark had come out of the creek and dressed himself. "'I don't see how I could smell of citronella now,' said Mark. "'I even washed my hair.' "'A few seconds later he said, "'A mosquito just bit me, so it's all right. "'Gee, I never thought I'd be glad to have a mosquito bite me.' The repercussions of that night were several. Rush got home so late that, sc that Cuffy scolded him straight into bed. She even opened his door after the light was out to tell him an extra thing or two about his behavior. Isaac arrived still later, and by daylight it was apparent to everyone that he had had an argument with a skunk, and that the skunk had had the ultimate triumphant word. "'Keep him out of here! Keep him out!' cried Mona frantically, holding her nose. "'What a awful smell! Revolting!' "'It was Rush's sad duty to purify Isaac. "'He did it with the garden hose, brown soap, white soap, "'a scrubbing brush, and a bottle of eau de cologne. "'Mona's. "'It took all morning, and at the end of it Cuffy swore "'all that had happened was that Rush had transferred the smell to his own person. "'He was handed his luncheon through the kitchen window "'and made to eat it out of doors.' After that he himself had a bath with the hose. Nobody would let him use the pool. That night Rush woke up feeling as though there were crumbs under his skin, and by the next morning he had developed a howling case of poison ivy. He wondered if Mark had it too, but wistfully decided that he probably hadn't, that the bath in the creek had undoubtedly saved him. "'What I can't understand,' said Cuffy, scrubbing him raw with a nail-brush and brown soap, "'is why it's broke out all over your front like that.' "'But Rush, remembering that brief, unpleasant journey "'on his stomach through the dark woods, "'understood all too clearly, "'and sighed the deep, patient sigh of a martyr bound by secrecy.'" End of chapter 6, read by Kara Schallenberg on Sunday, March 17, 2013, in San Diego, California.